The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Holy God, you tell us in your word at least three times explicitly and implied in other places that you oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. So I ask you, Father, perceiving a little bit of what that means and a little bit of what's in me and in us here, I ask you that you would, before that opposing of the proud, that you would give grace to us to make us humble. It seems like too much to ask that we, proud rebels against you, would ask you to soften our rebellion. But I I pray that now for myself and for my brothers and sisters here. And I pray, Father, because I'm banking on the fact that you are a good and gracious God. And so knowing that about you, I ask you, would you come into our midst right now and change us and soften us and make us humble people so that we would not stand in opposition to you, futile as that is, that we would not stand in opposition to you but would stand beneath you ready to hear, ready to follow, eyes fixed on you, knowing that from you comes our strength. We have none in ourselves. Lord, would you do that here in our midst right now? And I pray that you would, Father, you would commission God the Son and God the Spirit to be active here in our midst. God the Spirit to lift up God the Son. To shine Him before our eyes. To make it apparent to us in our in our our weakness and in our our feeble vision to make it apparent to us who He is and and the the pinnacle of, of Your work that He is. We need Your Spirit's power for that to open our eyes. So I ask You, would You do that graciously? We are people, Lord, which means that we are weak and fallen. And I pray that You would build us and You would make us a church, a people honoring to You. For those here who don't know You, Lord, would You work in them to open their eyes and call them to You for the first time. And for the rest of us, would You open our eyes and call us to You the second, third, fifteenth, fiftieth time. We are saved people, but we need to be sanctified. And so I pray, call us to You. Change us. Grow us. Would You bring glory to Your Son here from this people? Bring glory to Your Son through this people as we interact with others around us. And if You would do that, we would praise You because it would be of Your strength and by Your grace. So I pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we turn our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is a a very long chapter, 
about blessing, cursing, and the grace of God. Which right off to some of us does not seem to all fit together. You mentioned cursing and grace in the same sentence. They don't quite seem to, to fit, but they do. There is an important connection, conceptually, and an important connection in this chapter that I think, I pray, I, I, I'm trusting God to make helpful to you in your life for your, for your walking with God and your struggle for joy in your life and your struggle against sin in your life. Blessing, cursing, and the grace of God connected. This chapter is modeled upon the, the concluding section of ancient treaties. We've talked about this before, but briefly, ancient treaties of the day in which this was written were made between great kings who, who conquered, who acquired a people, and they would then tell the people, now that you belong to me, here's what I expect of you. It all be laid out. And then it would conclude with a section called the blessings and the curses, in which there would be, and if you walk with me, here are the blessings you should expect from my hand. I promise them to you. And if you do not walk with me, here are the cursings you should expect from my hand. I promise them to you. Obviously a motivation to walk with him. And our, our chapter this morning is modeled on that. The blessings and the curses. Spoken by Moses at the conclusion of the covenant that he's reiterating with the people just before they cross the Jordan River. This is a very long chapter, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the chapter in two parts. I'm going to read the blessing part first, 1 through 14, make a couple of comments about that, and then read the lengthy cursing part after that and make some comments and reserve some time at the end for some larger overarching observations. But let me say before I do that as I read this, and particularly as I read the cursing section, it gets progressively worse and worse and worse as was common in all the treaties of the day. But there are some things there that are going to get your attention as it shows a progression of God's hand or, or the great king's hand lying heavier and heavier and heavier on the people. And depravity worsening and getting darker and darker and darker. It's designed to get your attention, so it probably will get your attention. It's in the cursing section. But first we begin with the blessing, verses 1 to 14. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And He will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to Himself as He has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. 
And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you His good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. 1 to 14. The chapter begins with the promise of blessing, which is conditioned upon obedience to the word of the Lord. If you walk this path of obedience... Here's what you will find on it, given by me. And it is the Lord himself who's giving it. He's, he must be very clear that it's not just that things happen. It's coming from his hand. If you faithfully obey, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations. He will exalt you. And these blessings, they'll stalk you. They'll, they'll chase you down and they'll come to rest upon you. Blessings. And then what follows is a, is a widespread Pretty much every area of life you can think about. A widespread, all-inclusive statement of blessing. Blessed in the city. Blessed in the field. And everything will be fertile. Everything will give life. The womb, the land, cattle. Plentiful food on your table. Your work will be productive. The, the blessed when you go out and blessed when you come in. That's figuring, uh, picturing the going out to work and coming back. Productive, useful work. That's blessing within the community. And then he says that I'm going to bless this community in relation to other communities. The, the nations of the earth, I will bless you in relation to them. Verse 7, the Lord will cause this community to rise up and be blessed militarily, economically. And as they're blessed in the land, all the nations of the earth are going to look at this people and they're going to figure out that the name of the Lord is on this people and they're going to see a connection. This people, the name of the Lord and the blessing and God will be setting this people apart to himself, holy, making them holy, set apart. And all the nations will look at that and fear, will reverence that, will, will note it very carefully. That's the name of the Lord doing that. That's the blessing, touching on every area of life, promising every area, everything you can think of, every category, to a great degree, which is hyperbole. Meaning, it, it's an exaggeration to make a point. All the treaties that the, upon which this is copied all use this sort of language. If you think it through, it, it, it would be impossible to do all of these sorts of things, especially if you look at the curses section. It's impossible to have all of them come true all at once. We're not supposed to read this and think that every single person is going to be filthy rich. That no one will ever get sick and no one will ever die. That they will never lose a military engagement. That they will always be the most powerful nation on earth. That it will always have plentiful rain. There will never be a shortage. Never. Not, not for a week, not for a month. Always. It's hyperbole. I'm not supposed to read it that way. Nor are we supposed to read it the opposite way. Well, if some of these things are present, that must mean that God's blessing. The presence of wealth means that God approves. The presence of plentiful rain means that God approves. You can't read it that way either. 
Bible's clear. Wicked people can be wealthy sometimes. God sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Bible's clear about that. So we're not to read this as a, a hard, direct connection. The genre tells us that. However, we are supposed to read this and see one point very clearly made. What he's saying is that I will rest my hands upon this people to bless in a remarkable, clear, extravagant way, such that those experiencing the blessing would say, I have known no other life like this. There is nothing else that compares. My former life was nothing like this. Nowhere else that I look has a life like this. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And others looking at it would say, wow. That's what God would give to those who follow Him and serve Him. Verse 14. And then verse 15 and following. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until He has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered, slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters 
shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils of which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes that He commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until He has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted came down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which the enemy shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress, distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. 
If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And He will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And in the evening you shall say, if only it were the morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel. And the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt. A journey that I promised you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But there will be no buyer. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. The word of the Lord. That's a tough section. Verse 15 restates verse 1, but in the negative. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord... Opposite of verse 2, and really what follows is the opposite of everything in the beginning. Where section A says, section 1 says A, section 2 says not A. B, not B. Blessed in the city, cursed in the city. Blessed in the field, cursed in the field. Just flipping everything around. No fertility, frustration in your labor, disease, drought, military defeat, verse 25. The nations will fear you, says that a couple of times, but for a different reason. They're going to abhor you. They're going to want to stay away from you, not out of fear, but out of fear that you'll contaminate them. As everything piles up on you, given again repeatedly by the Lord. Families destroyed. Incurable diseases. Internal, emotional toil. The onset of severe depravity within people. Again, we are not meant to read this section as if every single one of these things would immediately come upon every single person who disobeyed anything that God said. There's a progression here. And if you read it closely, it's impossible. Is He going to destroy them utterly or reduce them in numbers? You know, which is it? Yes. Kill them or afflict them with disease? Yes. Is the locust going to eat the crop or are the foreigners going to eat the crop? Yes. The point is, you're not. And just like before, we can't read it the other way to see that 
if, the pre- if some of these things are present, that means that the curse of God rests on us. Just like the wicked can be wealthy, the righteous can be poor. The Bible's clear on that. The righteous can have difficulty having children. The righteous can be sick. The righteous can die. That's all clear. And so be very careful not to read this and say, oh, that's me, that's my life, I must be cursed of God. I'm not supposed to read it like that. The main point is to say, again, if you walk this way, the hands of God will come upon you and there will be a life of remarkable blessing. But if you walk this way, the hands of God will seize upon you and there will be a life of remarkable trouble. That's the main point. He's talking about what rejection of Him brings. And as it moves on, if you notice the flavor of it, as it moves on, this, it, what starts out as, as an either-or possibility begins to seem more like this is not really just a possibility. This is starting to sound like a prophecy. There's a note of inevitability beginning to grow in the cursing section. Look at verse 36, for instance. The language begins to feel like a prophecy when he says, And you shall set up a king. Talked about that earlier, and here he repeats it. It's going to happen. You're going to set up a king. Theoretically, it could be an okay thing, but it's going to end up not being an okay thing. It's going to be a substitute for God. And the king that you set up is going to get you in trouble. It's going to send you and him away to a foreign land. It's referring to the exile. We who know the history of Israel know that a lot of this stuff happened. An exile came when as a last resort, a final curse, here he's talking about it actually happened, God picked up this people that he had brought into this land and threw them out. And the text begins to move to talk more and more and more from 36 on. It really, that's the central focus, the exile. 41, you shall go into captivity. 49, he will bring a nation from the end of the earth. 64, scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve the dead idols of the nation. Return to Egypt, verse 68. God brought them out of slavery, put them into a land, and is saying the final note in this is that I'm going to kick you out of the land and send you back into slavery. But actually, it's going to be so bad that they won't even buy you as slaves. That's the passage. Promising in the beginning, and then it turns and becomes worse and worse and worse. Inevitable, really, in its judgment. There's a sobering warning here for those who claim the name of God. God is pretty serious about something in this passage. And there's a warning there in that to us. So we're going to talk about that. But more importantly, and I want to add more importantly, there is a window in this passage into how God aims to bring about that which God requires. I'm going to say that again. The first part of this, there's clearly something that God is serious about, something that God requires. But more importantly, there's a window into it. If we look through this window, we're going to see how does God 
bring about what God requires. How does he do that? There's a way here. He's aiming at something and there's a way that he aims to bring that about. Now, it does not work in the Old Covenant. Fails. That's still his way. Modified, changed, improved in the New Covenant. It works. We're going to see it in a little window. We're going to look through it and see God's way to bring about what God requires and know that in the New Covenant it works to move us to walk this path of obedience after Him. How He gets us there is by grace. Which, as I said, seems odd after you read all of that cursing. But it's there. And we'll get to that. But first we begin with what God requires. All right, two observations here. The first observation relates to what He requires. God requires glad-hearted obedience in those who carry His name. Glad-hearted obedience in those who carry His name. That's what He wants, His goal. This is obvious because of how often it's repeated throughout the whole chapter. It's the condition for the blessings, verse 1, if you are faithful to obey and careful to do all these commandments, verse 2, if you obey the voice of the Lord, verse 9, He'll bless if you keep His commandments and walk in His ways, 13 and 14, if you obey the commandments of the Lord and do them and don't turn aside from them. That's the blessing section, which is repeatedly anchored to obedience. And the cursing section is no less repetitive and no less clear. 15, but if you do not obey, 45, these curses should come upon you because you did not obey. 58, afflicted if you are not careful to do all the words of this law. 62, left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. So right off, we need to be really clear about something. God expects, God requires obedience from all of humankind because He is the creator of all of humankind. And all of humankind, everybody on the planet will stand before this one and only God and be judged by Him according to His standard, His Word. So it's required of everybody, but in particular, those of us who name His name, who claim affiliation with Him, He especially is concerned about obedience among us. This is one of the main points of the whole book. Which is one of the reasons I wanted to preach through this book. God has always required His people to be set aside to Him, made, made holy, set apart to Him, separated from the ways of the world, to, to hear and to cling to and to follow, to obey Him. Deuteronomy is all about that from beginning to end, explaining what that looks like, urging, commanding, promising, threatening, all in relationship to this concept of obedience. As a church, we need to be really clear about that. God requires obedience. And, and as I say that, I, I imagine that there are some of us here who, who think like, you know, duh. Sure, I mean, you've talked about this constantly, and it's all over the Bible. It's in the New Testament just as well as in the Old Testament. The New Testament has no fewer commands. 
The reason that I keep talking about this, and maybe I'm only talking to a few here, but the reason I keep talking about this is that I keep running into people who claim to be Christians and are a law unto themselves. I keep running into people like that, sometimes in this church, sometimes in the wider world, who claim to be Christians and are their own gods. Sometimes it looks like this. Well, I know God has said this and that, but that doesn't work for me right now. Sometimes it's just that blatant. More often, it's a little, little more subtle. I'm a Christian, and yeah, I see, I see God has said that, but I, I'm sure that in our culture, that in my particular circumstance, He would say something else. So I'm going to act on that. Now notice I'm not being specific here because I don't mean to be specific. I'm just talking about the concept of obedience. And people, I'm telling you, people play these games. And I look at a passage and say, there are some things that you and I can disagree about what God requires, and there are some things that are plain as day. And this circumstance I'm describing rarely happens with the debatable theological stuff. It usually circles around stuff that this person doesn't want in their life. but is quite clear. So I need to talk about this. I need to bring it out and point out something that God is highly concerned. He is not a God of conceptual suggestion. Because He is not conceptually suggestive. He is a certain way. And all of the commands that He gives all come out of what He is. He's not one thing on Tuesday, another thing next Wednesday. He is, and His commands are constant. His moral law that comes out of Him is constant. It applies to all of us. So I need to, I need to make that clear to the church, and maybe, maybe what I need to say is, please, resolve yourself on this now before you get into a difficult situation. They pick divorce. Most people getting married have no concept that they're going to get divorced eventually. I mean, I, I do premarital counseling with folks, and I'm talking to people who are in premarital counseling, and we never have a session about, okay, here's what happens when you get divorced. Because that's the furthest thing from anybody's minds in the premarital counseling session. So maybe what I'm saying is, in that sort of situation, I encourage you, develop a conviction Write it down and take a stand on it. Because years later, in the midst of a difficult relationship, that's when the idea, you know, I really, I mean, earlier I didn't buy into the divorce concept. Now I do. Why is that? It's because the circumstances change, not because God's word has. I just picked on divorce, but I could pick on anything. Please. Develop in yourself a, a firm conviction that what, whatever it is that, that I feel about something takes a back seat to what God says about it. Especially if you're young. Maybe I'm speaking especially to, to high schoolers and, and teenagers and middle schoolers. Develop a conviction right now that God's Word is law, not idea. It's good for you but it's the way it is. 
We need to be a people who are extremely serious about fighting against sin and walking in holiness and obedience. But it is obedience understood in a certain way. This is very important. Look at verse 47. Right in the middle of the section of the curses. 45 says that all these curses curses shall pursue you and overtake you because you didn't obey. But what would the obedience that pleases God look like? It would be the opposite of verse 47. You, the, verse 47 is the problem, so you've got to think opposite to it. 47 says, You did not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, I curse you. That's amazing. Although when you're reading 100 verses, or you know, I guess 68 verses, it's easy to skip right by it and miss it. But that is amazing. Stop on that. Let's read it again. And I'm going to change the negatives to make it a positive here so we can see it more clearly. God would be pleased with, in other words, wouldn't curse. God would be pleased with and would bless what? Joyful, glad-hearted obedience. Not just service. Not just an obedience rendered with dutiful exactness, but with emotional disinterest, or worse, with emotional hostility. He's not after just the act. He's after the heart behind the act that produces it. And that's because he's not out just to acquire subjects. People who are in subjection, submission to him. He didn't create you or any of us or any of this because he needed some people to get some stuff done for him. You realize that? He didn't create us because he needed some hands and some feet to run around and serve him. He created so as to display his glory and be worshipped in it. To reveal to these new creatures that he just made, reveal to us, some taste of his glorious wisdom that would dream up a world like this with such intricacy. To show a, a taste of his glorious power that could bring a world like this to pass. And then could sustain it unshakable and redeem it. He's going to fix all of this. To give a taste to his new creatures of his glorious perfection. He is always good and always right and always knows everything and never makes any mistakes. It's amazing. A taste of his glorious perfection that never makes a mistake but also sustains our hearts. His beauty. A taste of his glorious grace that redeems people and makes a relationship where there shouldn't be one. That's what God is about. That's what all this creation is about. That's what this church is about. That's what you're about. That's what you're for. 
Which means that any service or obedience that would come from us, for it to match God's purpose, for it to be worship for Him, for it to honor Him, it must come, not grudgingly, but it must come from a joyful, glad heart. That's the kind of service that honors God. It's the same in human interactions. I've used this analogy a dozen times, so you've heard it before, but it's the best one I know. The, the serv- what I'm working on here is the service that honors God is a service that comes from a joyful, glad heart that's eager to do it. Same thing in human relationships. Think of a marriage. If you're a wife, it is not okay. You are not honored if your husband buys you flowers on Valentine's Day. And as you say thanks, he says, well, I had to. It's Valentine's Day. And if I didn't, you'd be upset with me and you wouldn't sleep with me tonight. If he says that, how does the wife feel? Honored? Praised? No, and not even just neutral. Insulted. You're trying to buy me. I have an obligation and duty. Thank you very little. I've used it a bunch, but that, that is the perfect illustration for this. Because it is so true. And the same thing is the case with God. What He's about is not just getting stuff done such that He just wants our service. I don't care what your attitude is, but get it done, please. No, what He's about is being worshipped and honored. And so it, for it to be worship and honor, it has to come obedience from a joyful and glad heart. God requires glad-hearted obedience from those who carry His name because that's what honors Him. And so if you think about it, that's also what draws others. And that's also what satisfies your own heart. You're not all that eager to be grudgingly obedient either. But if you were happy and joyful and glad in someone, and you do it. You follow them. You serve them. You help them. This is really good news. That God requires something that is so good for us and for others. That's really good news. Until you think about it again. God requires glad-hearted obedience. God requires glad-hearted obedience. Not just obedience. God requires that I be glad in Him. There are a bunch of times in my life, a bunch of times in every day, and in yours as well, when I really wish that He would just let me just do something because my heart is actually chasing something else. I wish that God, all you wanted was my 10%. And I could write the check and then go chase this other guy where my heart is really satisfied. You wish sometimes that you could just buy the flowers for your wife and then go watch sports. And that she'd be happy with that. 
You do. It becomes a problem when we realize that God is not content to just write a list of stuff or have us write a list of stuff and check it off, read through it closely, get all the details done while my heart is far from Him. I think He chastised a whole group of people for doing that. Lips are after me, but your heart is far from me. Obedient, but joyful in obedient, in obedience. I live falling short of verse 47's demands all of the time. And you do too. I don't, I don't know who everybody is here, but you do too. And so we're both, no matter, no matter who you are, we're both in this same boat. We need to ask, is there any hope for us? Because I read the chapter. And if I'm breaking verse 47... I'm in the wrong half of the chapter. And I clearly break verse 47. Is there any hope here? What God requires is glad-hearted obedience. Is there any hope? Any way around that? Any way through it? Yes, there is. Pointed to in this very same verse. It's elaborated on the rest of the scripture, but it's pointed to right here, and that leads us to our second observation. Second observation. The blessings of God are meant to lead us to repentance and joyful obedience. The blessings of God are meant to lead us to repentance and joyful obedience. Let me try to explain that. Look at verse 47 still. I stopped in the middle of verse. God intended that His people serve Him with joyfulness and gladness of heart based upon what? And if you have the NIV, it's a little bit more difficult to see this. You can see it there, but the NAS and the ESV make this really clear. It says, joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. What we have right there is a window into God's mechanism for bringing about what He's after. What's He after? Joyful, obedient, glad-hearted. How does He get that? It's right there in this little window. He requires joyful obedience, and so as to get it, He primes the pump with gracious blessing. I think this is sweet. He primes the pump with gracious blessing. Maybe the metaphor comes from old pumps and you had to put water in sometimes to get them to pump and get the water to come out. You prime the pump. I'm sure it works at other pumps as well, but that's the context. I know it. Looking at the abundance of all things... God intended that the people say, looking at the abundance of all things, look at that and say, what a great, generous, gracious, blessing God we have in gladness. Why would I go anywhere else? The earth has nothing I desire besides Him. And they would gladly follow Him. 
That's God's plan. That's His mechanism right there in that verse. They are coming into a land flowing with milk and honey. He repeats that a few times throughout this chapter. You're coming into this land. This land that I promised to give to you. A land of great abundance. And throughout the book we've seen it repeatedly stated, this is a land of great bounty. Militarily delivered there by God's strong hand, not by their own might. Protected there by God. Blessed there with God's presence. Blessed in every area of life already. That's where they start. They don't start in a neutral position with blessing as a possibility and cursing as a possibility. They start in the blessing category. With the abundance of all things piled up around them. Present in their midst. And how did they get that stuff? Chapters 9 and 10 couldn't be any more clear. Remember those chapters. Chapter 9's refrain. Spoken to the people repeatedly about them coming into the land and he wants to make very clear. He says to them, do not say, saying to the people, do not say, it is because of our own righteousness that we are being blessed with this land. In fact, you are a stubborn, rebellious people, provoking the Lord to wrath from the very beginning. It's repeated in chapter 9. 9 and 10 are trying to make something very clear. They have been delivered out of slavery, sustained through 40 years in the desert, delivered into a land of great promise and great abundance and great blessing purely by the grace of God. Not due to any merit in them whatsoever at all. And God holds up in front of them His gracious gift to them. His grace to them. Holds up His grace in front of them. You hear something here? Holds up His grace in front of them. Not a stick of the curse. Holds up His grace in front of them and says, Look! Look! Do you get a taste of me in this? Do you get a little taste of my glorious wisdom? A taste of my glorious power? Hundreds of years ago, I said I would bring you here. Here you are. Do you get a taste of my glorious grace? You didn't earn this at all. You are stiff-necked and rebellious, but here you are. And there's more of where that came from tomorrow. Follow me. Come. Because of the abundance of all things, glad-hearted joy should come. That's how God motivates the type of obedience that pleases Him. He holds up in front of His people His grace. Points them to it. Pours it out of them. Soaks them in it. Look what I have given. I will give more. Come. But if you don't, if you go that way, you will forfeit this. And you will find my disapproval, my discipline, even my wrath. That's there, but the primary motivation, look what I have done, look what I will do. 
It is His kindness that leads us to repentance. It is His kind grace that leads us to repentance and obedience with joy. Initially, when we're first converted, and then every day after that. Now, I need to point out something that I already addressed last week. I need to specifically bring this back in so that it's on your mind, or if you weren't here last week, so that you're aware of it. Because there is a problem here that I've just kind of skirted around. I break verse 47. I'm under the curse of God, and so are you. What do we do about that? Well, how, God can't hold up His grace in front of me if I'm already under His curse. Well, what we do about that is we run to Galatians 3 and worship. Talked about Galatians 3 last week. We do have a problem with curse. We are disobedient. We are under the curse of God. But Galatians chapter 3 says, Yes, it is true that we all like sheep have gone astray. Turned away from Him. Rejected Him. However... Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. I talked about that last week, but that is the message of the Gospel. And it is a message. It is information. The Gospel is not a program. The Gospel is not that checklist that we follow through closely. The Gospel, what that word means, literally is good news. When you sit down to watch the news at night, you're not doing anything. You're watching a report of what other people have done. The Gospel is a report of what someone else has done. And it is good because that something else that's been done is really good. The gospel, the good news is that God has looked at people under the curse who do not obey Him and do not obey Him with glad hearts and said, I will make my Son Jesus, God, come to earth in flesh. I will make Him a curse instead of you. Trust Him and He will redeem you out of that curse. That's the gospel that is good news. That is God's grace to us. You can see where I'm going with this. There is a work that God has done for you if you are a Christian. He has positionally, in your position before God, God as judge, you stand before Him in a position. He has positionally moved you from the last half of Deuteronomy 28 to the first half. Yes, you break verse 47. Yes, you're under the curse. But positionally, He's moved you by grace. You now stand blessed. His hands on you with remarkable blessing. More than any other life you could know. But God still requires of us today, in our day-to-day condition, so position is how you stand before God, and your condition is the state you're in right now, in this moment. He still requires of us today, in our day-to-day condition, joyful, glad-hearted obedience, because that's the only kind of obedience that honors Him and praises Him. So the fact that you've broken this 
put you under the curse of God, but He's removed that from you, Christian, by the cross. But He has not removed the obligation to walk after Him and obey Him. The Bible is still really clear on that. How does He get such joyful, glad-hearted obedience in you that He requires? How does He get that? Well, let's look through the window again. He doesn't get it by saying, try harder. He gets it by saying, through the window, Look at the abundance of all things piled up around you, Christian. Far better than they could look at back in the Old Testament. All they had was dirt and food. A little bit more. But you have something infinitely greater. Galatians 3 continues. He made him a curse for us so that the blessing of Abraham could come to the Gentiles. The Spirit living in you. Look at, look through the window, look at the grace that I have poured out on you. I have given you my spirit living inside of you, within your very heart. I commune with you that closely. Not in a temple far away where you can come and almost come near to me, but I live in you. Marvel at that. If your thinking on that leaves you Something less than joyful and glad-hearted. Are you a Christian? It is possible for a Christian to be less than joyful and glad-hearted. I want to be careful with that. But you should ask yourself, I'm dead to this. Is it real for me? Carefully, I am not saying that if right now you sit here flat that you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that the Bible says you should examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Because every true Christian has known the joy of the Lord. Thankfully, He has given us so much The abundance of all things, the the pinnacle of the things that He has given us is life with Christ. But He has given us, especially in this country, so much more. Piles of blessing. Physical peace. Physical prosperity. Health. Family. I mean, He's given us many things. Not every one of us in all the same degree, but we are a physically blessed people. But Psalm 16, that's not the main focus of our attention. Psalm 16 is true of every believer in all times, in all places. Psalm 16, I usually refer to the end of that psalm, but earlier, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Get that? The the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. What's my inheritance? Him. Which is why the psalmist can continue the lines, the lines of, of a possession, property lines. Mixing metaphors here, he's talking about an inheritance that is a food sort of thing and then a physical land sort of thing. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And the flat, broke, persecuted Christian in a communist country can say that just as much as we can. 
The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places as he sits in a prison cell. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So look at the abundance of all things around you. God says, look, do you see it? Do you get a taste of me in this? Look, it grows joy and gladness and produces obedience. The blessings of God. The grace of God. Particularly in the Gospel. But there is so much more than that even. The blessings of God are meant to lead us to repentance and joyful obedience. We must become a church like this. This this must be how you personally in your life work, and it must be how our church works. We must be known as a church, as as people who are serious about holiness and are seriously happy in our holiness. That's the only kind of holiness that pleases God. must become a people like that. Not a people who are pursuing some kind of holiness by a failed mechanism of law and punishment and conducts ourselves in our relationships as if we actually think it works. Using techniques like shame and judgmentalism. There are things that are wrong. We need to call them wrong. There are things that are right. We need to call those things right and call people to them. But we must always keep in mind that the mechanism that God uses to produce what He requires, obedience, holiness, glad-heartedness, the mechanism that He uses is a mechanism of grace. That's what's in the window. Look at what He has poured out in your heart and into your lap. Look, rejoice, be glad and obey. Let me pray. Father, I pray that You would make us a church like this. And I pray that You would give us humble hearts that are submitted to You. That cry out to You. That that ask You to show us more of Yourself so that we can see the abundance that You've given us. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.